Let's Talk Supply Chain Asia-Pacific is not your average supply chain podcast. We feature prominent industry voices, thought-provoking commentary on news, current affairs, and the latest technologies, while connecting you to companies and innovative thinkers who are transforming supply chains in our region and across the world. Don't listen to the same old, same old. Be sparked by new ideas only on Let's Talk Supply Chain Asia-Pacific. This episode is brought to you by ParallelShipping.com, the newest shipment management platform on the planet. Parallel allows you to manage all your shipments in one place. Ditch the spreadsheets and avoid endless email trails. Now you can collaborate with your team and other supply chain providers in one easy-to-use platform. Head over to ParallelShipping.com to start your free trial today. Welcome to Let's Talk Supply Chain Asia Pacific. Thanks for joining me on the show. My name is Jonathan Kempe. It's a pleasure to host you and I hope you look forward to this amazing episode, episode number three. This episode, we have Alison Cusack, a friend of the show and someone who I've known for a few years now, who is the principal lawyer of Cusack & Co based down in Melbourne in Australia. She's the founder as well. And Cusack & Co is a niche maritime focused law firm that assists shippers and freight forwarders with tailored contracts for their ocean carriage. You can check them out at www.cusackandco.com.au. Alison's also a lecturer with Victoria University where she teaches business and company law to the Victoria Business University Business School. And on top of that, and I don't know where she finds the time, she is also the president of Worcester Australia, a group that is directly involved in advocating for the rights of women and to hear women's voices in the maritime supply chain and shipping and trading industries. It's an absolute privilege for us to have Alice on the show. I look forward to hearing from her and learning from her as well. And I know that the topics that we cover on the show today will bring a really human face to some things that many folk who are listening along will understand and know intimately and well. I just wanna put a bit of a warning out there that some of the language that's used on this show might be a little bit colorful. We've chosen to deliberately not edit the show in any way, shape or form. And the reason for that is the topics that we cover off, as I've mentioned, are complicated and messy, and it's important for us to hear them as they are. So without further ado, let's listen to Alison Cusack and hear more about her story. Well, welcome to the third ever episode in the history of the world of Let's Talk Supply Chain Asia Pacific. I'm your host, Jonathan Kempe. It's a privilege to be here today and on the show today, an absolute honor to have a friend, colleague and industry professional of note in Alison Cusack. Alison, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. I'm very excited to be here virtually. Um, but- Wish Virtually. I could be here in the studio. Yeah, that would be that would be good. But soon, um, Melbourne has gone through some interesting periods with the lockdown, hasn't it? Been a, has a bit it? up and down. We don't yeah. know what to voluntarily choose to stay home, and you know, uh, I mean, I just worked on my business. <laughs> yeah, I think people have been getting by, which has been great. I think it's been very hard though, and but it feels like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. So perhaps more quickly than we hope. We hope so. Mm. And we might see each other physically in person, wouldn't that just you, be You strange? mean meet for the first time? For the first time ever. First time. First, first time, time ever. ever. Well, we've got lots of things to cover on the show. There are lots of exciting things happening in the industry, a lot of drama happening in the industry as well. And there's also some personal topics that I want to cover with you, some of which have recently come to light. 
And I know much like throwing a, a pebble into a pond have caused certain ripples. So I want to get your perspective on those as well. But why don't we start off with where it all started? Not, maybe not perhaps, you know, when Alison was a young girl, she aspired to X, Y, and Z. But, but here you are as a maritime lawyer, as we've heard in the intro, um, crushing it on a few different fronts, president of Worcester, amongst other things. Um, but where did that start? Where did your journey into maritime, into supply chains, into all of the related domains that are the topic du jour, uh, where, where did you get started in those things? So that was when I was a moot junkie at law school, uh, being fake law courts, and you get to do competitions and argue and plot and, you know, public speaking, which I love. Um, and they had the maritime law arbitration moot. And none of the Victorian law schools have maritime as an undergrad. So it was like, hey, you can spend your entire summer learning maritime from scratch by yourself um, and then compete. And I was like, yeah, sounds like fun. Um, <laughs> <Ned alert. laughs> who, says, who says that? Who, who says that? <laughs> um, but as soon as I found out about it, you know, I'd been in law school and it's all very theoretical, ethereal concepts, right? Money, ethereal concept. It's backed by basically public confidence. Um, IP. That's just like, oh, yeah, no, we definitely think that's a thing. Uh, corporations, not physically embodied. And then I come mm. across Maritime and I was like, cool. So a ship crashes into a wharf and some containers spill over and you can see the damage. And I was like, that is cool. That is so cool. Because a lot of people don't know that I came from uh, an attempt at an engineering degree. And not hmm. only was it engineering, it was electrical engineering. So 10 to the negative 9 nano. So I went from 10 to the <laughs> negative 9 to physical damage and I was like, sign me up. Sign me sign up. It's just so cool. It's tangible just, things. It's tangible and it's big um, and it was fun. It's shipping. It's fun. So yeah. that's how I started. Um, and then when you do your get your honours, you have to do a dissertation. And I was like, you can talk, do anything you want. And I was like, okay, that's a lot of choice. That is too much choice. Mm. I said, how the hell do you whittle it down to a topic? And I said, oh, just do something you've already done a lot of research on. And I had done a lot of, I'd done the G, general average, the GA uh, portion of the moot, and I was hooked. Yeah. It was like, this is the weirdest concept, but I love it because to me, GA is we all muck in together, right? Yep. No one left behind. We all muck in together. We all throw a, you know, a tenner into the pot. You know, no one's going to be left out in the cold. Um, I know. People in the industry will be like, Alison, that's not quite how that works, obviously. <laughs> but, that's right. It's but, a simplification. But simplification. Right. Simpli on a simplification. Yeah. And so I did my dissertation in that. Um, and, of course, I went off and learned about general average and the York Antwerp rules, and I contacted all of the shipping um, lawyers in Australia, and then I wrote off to um, – uh, Sweden and Germany because they've got codified GAs and then I became the GA nerd of Australia. Um, <laughs> and I just was like, and everyone's like, all the lawyers in Australia are like, no, no, that's that's too niche even for us. And I was like, what? Mm. You don't want to get into the intricacies of the 2016 um, to the 2004 York Antwerp rules and the difference and why they are a replacement or an amendment for the purposes of the NYP 93 Charter Party pro forma? That's not that's not how you spend your Saturday nights. <laughs> I would venture there's one person who spends their Saturday night doing that, and we're grateful that that person is you, Alison. Now, in terms of GA, I know there's been a bit of a buzz lately with the Zim Kingston, mm. uh, which I think recently declared GA. Do you have any commentary about that specific incident, which 
Look, GA is a great timely reminder that insurance is not just a fun little product you pick up in the middle of the Aldi aisle on a Saturday um, mm. after, you know, when you just feel like it. It's something you should probably get all the time, in my professional mm. opinion. Um, GA is a where paperwork goes to die for the poor average adjuster, and they have the master of all spreadsheets. So think of it like a group assignment. You're waiting mm. on that one person to do their bit so you can all just get mm. on with your day. So, But yeah, that's why well. you get your insurer. You just palm it off to your insurer and be like, that's your headache now. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I know you, like in terms of some of the innovative stuff that you've been involved in, Cusack & Co, um, you have an insurance assessment process tool that, you've, you, yes. that you're using in industry. Is that right? Clams. Clams. Cargo, Cargo Liability Assessment Marine. If anyone ever wanders onto my uh, cusackandco.com.au website, they will see a notable uh, theme amongst my products and the imagery. Um, but mm. basically it is, if you've got a cargo claim, uh, instead of figuring out what the hell to do yourself, um, pop it through my chatbot and it forces you to give me all the information I need and then um, for a flat fee, uh, it's give you a basically traffic light assessment, red, yellow, green. Red is what? you're cooked, don't bother. Um, mm. Orange is, look, you got a claim, but you've probably mucked up along the way and you've cost yourself some money and green mm. is go for it. Um, and uh, I had pitched to WK Webster actually about creating a GA version of that wow. so they could streamline the incoming documentation um, so that it was all preset and you could pick, you could, you could funnel it by vessel, right, mm. and you could take vessels offline because it's, it's paperwork vomit is what they call yeah. it. Paperwork vomit. Put that in the quotable quotes. Don't get involved in GA because it's a niche discipline. This is what I've learned so far. Yeah. And clams will help you process your claim. <laughs> There's two yeah. things that we've learned already. Um, now, let's turn our attention to the wider industry. We mentioned the Zim Kingston, but there's been lots of things that have been happening in supply chain. You've had quite a history in supply chain. You're actually um, involved in the, at the carrier level, um, not just uh, on the logistics coalface per se, but in terms of how a, a carrier operates. Do you want to comment any of, of the about any of the experiences that you picked up along the way before you started your own law firm? Uh, yeah, I loved it. I absolutely loved the coalface um, of being at a carrier because there was two lawyers and there was the general counsel and there was me. And mm. you can guess that all the little spot fires and all the little messy bitsy things, you know, G general counsel's prerogative. I'm going to palm that off to the junior. It'd be great for her learning. Great <laughs> for her learning. Accelerate the learning, yeah. Celebrate right. the learning. Um, <laughs> the rats and mice stuff, as we call mm. it. Um, and it was really, really useful to learn, you know, it's the difference between the ivory tower of law school and how to write mm. the perfect contract versus how to write the contract that will get signed. They yeah, are two right. very different things and there's a lot of nuance right. and I know that I probably have a, Bit of a reputation for being a battering ram and, and going hard at things. Um, but when it comes to contracts, you've got to be the skills of a deft surgeon. You have to make little mm. tiny strategic cuts and changes um, to get the most impact. Uh, and that's right. what I learned. And I, but I also learned what people care about and what they don't care about. And it's yeah. very different to <laughs> probably what regulators think you should care about versus what you actually care about. Um, I think I've had many, many conversations and possibly even with you, Jonathan, when people go, oh, but blah, blah, blah. And then I kind of go, <laughs> no, no one's going to pay it That's no not how it pay. works. Nobody yeah. cares about that, but they should. Yeah. Oh, no, I agree. 
I agree. Yeah. They'll take it for free, <laughs> but they don't yeah. care any less about it. Um, yeah. So that was really great because I really tried to find sort of a champion in each internal team, whether it was the ship planners, um, customer service, tenders, documentation, um, the commercial team, you know, planning the consortia trades, you know, what goes into that, the negotiations between the lines to, to build those trades out um, and then what happens and what changes, um, but also just the little the little bitsy things. And, you know, the it's nothing that would ever go to an external lawyer because it's not worth it, but it's just, mm. you know, death by a thousand cuts for the yeah, everyday consumer right. or, or client mm. of a shipping line, and that's what I got to see. And, you know, I say shipping's two speed. It either had to have happened 30 minutes ago or you've got two weeks. Like the amount of times everyone's like, oh, where is it? And you're like, oh, it's on the water. Oh, great. I'll deal with it next week. No problem. Yeah. Um, huh. But it was really, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I mean, there's always ups and downs, but um, the the customer service team used to call me clean up on R13. Like, call clean Alison. Up in, She'll call, fix it. <laughs> clean up on R13. Is, is it fair to characterize your time as you were doing that as a in-depth look in the industry's innards, like the the yeah, raw mechanics yeah. of how it worked, and that set you in good stead to then subsequently start your own law firm that specialises in those things. Is that a I no, I definitely, I definitely agree. I think I didn't probably realise just how much experience that I had gathered because to me I was forever learning. I was forever learning because every time there was a vessel incident, I had to learn more about the vessel workings, if there was a fuel problem, if there was a hatch cover problem, if there was a fire. Um, so to me, there was always more to more to learn, right? So I knew how much I didn't know. Um, but yeah, when I came out on the other side, and people were like, oh, blah blah blah, and I'm like, oh, I'll just do this. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, yeah, that's just how it works. I'm like, how do you know mm. that? I'm like, mm -mm, mm. it's on the other side. And yeah, yeah I, I don't think I realized at the time, and I probably still sometimes don't realize just how much I know. Um, and mm. I think that it gets me into trouble a little bit in the sense that I'm like, yeah, everyone knows that. And everyone's like, no, that we mm. don't. I'm like, oh, whoops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a certain amount of niche information. I think, in fact, the first time that we met, uh, which was just online, we were riffing about something on LinkedIn. That was my first impression. I thought, Alison knows this niche information that's actually very useful. And for me as a technology founder, new to the industry, I was like, I have no idea. And so it's been very value valuable for us to dialogue backwards and forwards because you will say things in just general conversation, as you've just said it. Um, you know, it's surely someone knows that. And I'm like, wow, okay, that's completely new information. It's it's why, and you know, this is I'll make the shameless plug. It's why I absolutely endorse not only the work that you're doing through your specific law firm, but also the course that you've spun up about shipping. And the reason I want to highlight that and people listen to the end, they'll hear a specific um, advertisement about it. But um, to speak about it in detail, not to overly overcook it, but it is a course that reflects the practicalities of the industry in a way which imparts that niche wisdom and understanding. Um, so if people are new to shipping, if they're new to the logistics and supply chain components of shipping, if they're new to how the whole maritime environment sticks together, this is a great holistic course. So there's my shameless plug your course i found it personally beneficial and i'm sure other people will as well I so, so i mean yeah. oh, i do appreciate the plug because i i wrote that course because i wish i had that course when i started as a lawyer in a carrier because i was like furiously googling things and you know they're talking about drage mm. down at the wharf and i type in drage into google and i'm like you guys got donkeys you got What's donkeys at the wharf and they're like no I allison that's no we don't and i was like yes. <laughs> <laughs> Google. 
Uh, chipping. Yeah, I mean, now you find yourself with your own law firm in in shipping, which in and of itself is is obviously an achievement. Nothing to diminish about that. But but shipping in and of itself has um, its own um, public persona and its own private eccentricities. And and some of those have not been entirely easy for you, have have they? I think there's been experiences that you've gone through, not just in establishing your own law firm, but also personally, which have been is it this right to say it's, they've been quite taxing and in many ways quite traumatic? Is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah, I think I, I mean, I was brought up by my parents that you could do anything you wanted and then I went to the tax office as a grad and it's the APS, so it's all very, you know, nicely, nicely and APS values and then come to the shipping industry and you run smack bang into you can't. I'm like, mm. why can't I? And they don't say it straight up. I mean, sometimes they actually do, but, you know, sometimes it's like because you're young, because you're female, because mm. you don't have a family in shipping. You can't, you can't, yeah. you can't. And it's just this invisible net of restriction and sometimes you just want to scream in it and be like, can I just do what I love, please? Yeah, Is that such a – Such a hard thing. Is that such a big ask? Mm. Uh, because I mean, you've got a intense, and this is, I mean, obvious. If you, if anyone follows Alison on any of the social media channel, you'll see immediately that you are passionate about this topic and passionate about the industry. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's been reciprocated, has it? It's actually oh, been. Oh no! Co- no, I have been. <laughs> uh, people feel very comfortable uh, saying things directly to my face. Um, which is incredibly mm. surprising. Um, yeah, people are very upfront with their critique of me and how I'm not what I should be. I don't know. Right. They don't tell me what I should be, but they definitely are very quick to tell me what I shouldn't be. Um, and all I'm trying to do is practice the law I love and you know, try and make some inroads to make shipping a better workplace culture for women, which yeah. is always, you know, it always confuses me. It confuses me. Like if you're not mm. going to, if you don't see the problem, step aside. If you don't think the problem should exist, stand behind me or stand beside me. But get the hell out of my way. Mm. Yeah, I get what you're trying to communicate there. And I think it's mirrored in the work that you're doing with Worcester and some of the stories that you've had to process with Worcester mm. have no doubt added to that overarching picture. Uh, I've heard industry commentators talk about this and, and some of the more benign or the you know, simple comments are like, oh, I've got some work to do here. But, but the reality in the trenches is significantly more dramatic than that, isn't it? It's, it's not just that there's an invisible you know, sort of glass ceiling holding people back. There has been times of extreme trauma, which your Worcester members and other women in Maritime have described. Um, but you've had your own personal journey with that, haven't you? Yeah, sucks. <laughs> it sucks. Yeah. yeah, I have. I have. And I just um, wrote about it uh, for the DCN magazine, uh, which came out this week. Um, and it's taken me four years, four years uh, to want to talk about it publicly. And even right. then, I questioned myself every single step of the way. Every yeah. single step of the way. When I wrote the article, when I sent the article to the editor, when she came back with edits, when she came back with the proof and the photo that they chose, the sort of um, generic photo they put with it, just whew, absolutely took the wind right out of me. 
Um, And when I sent it off and said yes, and when they came back and said, are you sure? And I I was like, pull the plug, pull the plug, pull the plug, pull the plug. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Um, Yeah, it just sucks. Sucks really hard to be a victim, don't know? Sucks. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it sucks to be. I get. I get. Can I? Can I just drill down into that just a little? Yeah. Um, when you say um, you're reluctant to talk about it, um, not not reluctant to talk about it per se, but as soon as you got it down into print, you started to feel this mm-hmm. anxiety about sharing your story. Can you just explain why that is? Like, why? Why do you think you felt that sense of pressure or a sense that I really shouldn't? be talking about this or this isn't me? What, what, what were some of the thoughts going through your mind? When have you ever seen a woman not have to pay an unimaginable price for speaking up? Hmm. Who have we seen that's spoken up that has quote-unquote won, hmm. that has gotten to live a life that is separate from her past trauma and from being a victim? Once you're a victim, you're always a victim, and that victimhood carries with you. And I am more than that. I'm more Mm. than a victim of being assaulted. Um, Mm. But then would I forego that? Would I just always – I wouldn't be Alison Cusack, principal lawyer of Cusack & Co. I wouldn't be Alison Cusack, West Australia president. I wouldn't be Alison Cusack who just lives life. I would become Mm. Alison Cusack, the victim. And then would that – jeopardize my career would clients not want to work with you know a lot of my clients are male would they not want to work Mm. with me anymore because Mm. oh well what if she accuses me oh she's Mm. too emotionally unstable oh she's too unhinged oh she's going to accuse me oh it's too hard it's too hard it's too hard Mm. it makes people uncomfortable and then would I then be giving up even more and would I be asked to pay a higher price um and you know, what would I gain? All I could think all I could think of was all the losses that pile mm. up one on top of each other and what would I gain yeah. from it? And and why should I have to sacrifice myself on the altar yeah. of change? Mm. Why me? Why can't I yeah. just have an easy life? Yeah. Easier. <laughs> Can I but also Right. It took me two hours. So the first draft was three and a half thousand words and I wrote it in two hours and I cried the entire time. Hmm. Right? Like it's four years ago. There's 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 an intrinsic pressure to, for a timeline on grief. And it's gonna, you know, all I mean I, I could immediately, immediately come up with twenty points that if I post this on LinkedIn, it's like, why didn't you name him? Why didn't you name his company? Why didn't you speak out earlier? Why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do that? And, you know, just the critique, who's going to come out and say, what you did at the time was perfect. What you did afterwards was perfect. Mm. Because the industry has never said, the, the culture is always, you're not insert whatever criticism here. Yeah. So if they're happy to do that, on everything else that I try and do out of passion and love and just keenness and nerdery, then mm. something as deeply personal as this to lay bare and have everyone judge and critique mm. an armchair critic. Why the hell would I put myself through that? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, 
even just that brief part of sharing your story, and I know what you've just shared is just you're scratching the surface. Um, what's indicative to me, as you've just spoken just then, is um, this was four years ago. Mm. And, uh, yeah, the people who say you should have dealt with it earlier can just pipe down because that sort of talk is completely inappropriate and doesn't acknowledge the fact that certain things that people go through take a, a lifetime to work themselves through. Um, can you just pause and give us some thought on that process over the last four years as you, as you went through um, an intense period of personal change for yourself and mm. then professional change? inside an industry that you love, but also carrying this weight that you had to work your way through. What, what has that been like over the last four years? At first it was shock and anger and guilt, so much guilt. Mm. I couldn't stop wondering if it was my fault. Huh. Wow. The amount of times I blamed myself. Because if I hadn't have been so ambitious, I wouldn't have been up for an award and I wouldn't have been in the room and maybe I should have just gotten back in my box, mm. right? It was punishment. It was punishment for wanting any level of recognition for the work I'd done. Um, it was what I was wearing. Bought a brand new dress. So excited. Couldn't wear it again. I kept it for three years, actually, because um, I was so angry. I was like, why shouldn't I get to wear this dress again that costs hundreds of dollars? Mm. Um, you know, it was a defiance. Um, who the hell is this guy, this piece of trash, <laughs> um, to ruin and take away what I love? And, and push me out of an industry and push me out of a job and push me out, well, no, not push me out of a job, but in terms of if I left the industry, I would have left my mm. job. Um, uh, God, it was exhausting. It was mm. so exhausting because you can't, you don't take time off of thinking about it. And because it happened on a work trip, um, it was a workplace incident. And so mm. then talked about it at work. So it's not like it happened in my personal life and I could go to work and pretend like, didn't have to tell anyone, no one knew. So many people knew at work. Uh, a lot didn't. I'm sure a lot of my former colleagues are going to read the DCN article and be like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, mm. I didn't get a, you don't get time off on trauma. You don't get mm. to put it in a neat little box. So I was angry. I was so angry um, at so many people um, and mm. so many things. Um, and I was angry at myself. And then I was just so fatigued by the injustice. Right. Nothing really happened. He didn't get fired. He's still employed. Mm. His lackeys tried to make it go away. They tried mm. to make it go away. Um, it was basically duck-shoving accountability at all points. And I felt so incredibly voiceless. Like I just wanted to scream, but nothing would come out. Um, and then I felt like, well, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. Like it wasn't as bad as an assault as it could be. So maybe I'm just, you know, am I doing it for attention? You know, all these thoughts that come in. Um, yeah, and I just, and it was around the time of the Harvey Weinstein Me Too era as well. Um, so it was everywhere, which was good and bad. Um, 
because it was coming to light, but also it just felt like this insurmountable mountain um, to overcome. And it's like, where am I safe? Where am I safe? Um, and, yeah, and then I quit my job um, a couple of months after that because <laughs> mm. I was just, I couldn't, I couldn't, because it was, it was all intertwined. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It was, it was tarnished. Mm. I was tarnished. You know, I felt, I felt tainted. I felt mm. tainted um, and dirty and not, not in a weird Catholic sense, you know what I mean? But just violated. Mm. And I didn't know how to stop feeling that. Um, and I think I was just angry with everything and everyone. And yeah. <laughs> I wanted to reclaim my voice and reclaim my power and my autonomy. And when you're working for a big multinational, you can't just come out and say what you want, right? There's repercussions. It's business. You can't, you know, that brand is attached to you. So you don't have that, um, you know, you just don't have that luxury. So I was like, right, I'll start my own business, start my own business, and I'll never, ever be muzzled again. Mm. And I genuinely thought that I would fail. Anyone that I spoke to in the first six months, I was like, how the hell did I get to six months? my 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 angry angry goal plan was to go out guns blazing and take down every single piece of crap misogynistic prick that I'd ever encountered in the six years and publicly take him down as I left the industry and set mm. every bridge on fire. That was the goal. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> sounds pretty intense. But that's yeah. you know, and I don't I mean, I'm sure there's lots of people who are like, yeah, Alison was really angry around then. Um, but you don't tell everyone because you want to ignore mm. it. Um, but why shouldn't I be angry, Jonathan? Yeah. Why shouldn't I have been allowed to be openly angry? Because it was shrouded in sh- it was shrouded in shame and secrecy. Yeah. Don't talk uh, about I it. I think. Yeah. Don't don't talk about. It. I think. My, my, uh, as you're speaking through that, I think the depth of your response mirrors the depth of the complexities of what you had to endure so you might you might have and i, I know we've we've affectionately talked about this term of hurricane allison uh, which which is a term of endearment i, I have you know <laughs> but but what people might be hearing and what you've just said and you know with with more information that comes to light um there's a reason for that there's a reason why you're such a fighter there's a reason why you are so passionate about certain things. There's a reason why with Worcester and through other avenues that you want to give voice to those who don't have a voice. I, I want to pause, though, and think about two groups of people who have been involved along this journey. Um, first, I want to just turn my attention to those people during that time that you were going through the process of the assault and subsequent events that happened. Was there a group of people who effectively were silent bystanders to that they might not have actively participated, but they also didn't stick up for you. They didn't step in. They didn't say anything. Is that? They laughed, Jonathan. Hmm. They closed in and formed a perfect circle, hiding it from view, and they laughed. They thought my assault was funny. Hmm. I don't even know who this person was. I'd never met any of them. and. I think that's what pissed me off the most of myself is that 
many women will resonate with this. You think in your head what's going to happen if you ever get attacked because you know it's going to happen. When you're walking home from a nightclub, when you're walking to a taxi, when you're walking home from the train station, when you're walking home from friends, when you're walking by yourself, you are aware, you're alert, you are on guard. And you Mm. always think, what am I going to do? Where am I going to run to? How am I going to scream? Where am I going to kick him? You think about it, you plan it, and this is you plan it a lot. It's not just once off. It's every time you just feel a little bit like, I didn't do what I thought I would do. I froze and I didn't think that I would freeze. And so that was an identity, you know, crisis of identity. Mm. But after it happened, I took two steps, twirled around, grabbed his name tag, and I always remember them going, laughing in my face and going, ooh, she wants to know who you are. I said, no, I want to know who to sue. Hmm. That's the only reason I have his name. So, yeah, they stood around and they laughed. And and is that? Because assault is funny, apparently. And th- th- that to me, I don't want to be too overly inflammatory here, but it seems to indicate after and I've spoken with a few women in the industry and I've heard some of their stories and we're starting to get, you know, a more open dialogue in, in the wider community. You know, we could name a few names of some prominent Australians who've recently come into public consciousness because of assaults and other various hidden things that have been recently brought to light. It, in your view, is what happened there, and I definitely don't want to downplay your individual experience, but just explain it in, in its context. Is it symptomatic of a wider problem inside shipping and maritime that we all need to be more aware of? I mean, I want to make the point firstly very clear, the whole not all men brigade. Like if I see a not all men comment on this podcast, I'll be furious because think about my experience. It was the actual person a group of eight-plus men plus his board plus his management team. That's, it's mm. not all, but goddamn, that's a hell of a lot. And that's right. the problem. Shipping and Maritime, not fabulous at this, and I don't think anyone inside Shipping and Maritime would say that we're great at gender equality and, and um, you know, protecting women. But it's systemic across, it's systemic across all of Australia. I mean, mm. those people that you referenced when there was protests in the street in March in Canberra, it was met by the leader of the nation saying, well, you're lucky you weren't shot at. Mm. If that is what is acceptable, seen as acceptable to say in a leader's mind, then does that not permeate through other leaders' minds? Because make yeah. no mistake, the man who assaulted me is the managing director of his company and still is managing director. Right. And so culturally, I don't, I see so much pressure and obligation and mental load put on women as victims. Well, you've got to fix it. It's your job to fix us. It's your job to teach us. It's your job to educate us. It's your job to put your hand up and say, this isn't okay. I've had people, men say to my face, well, you're supposed to tell us when it's not okay. Right. So you're saying, do you ask victims of, house robberies to go investigate who robbed their house? Mm. Like what other group gets told they've got to investigate or advocate for themselves? You're asking a victim to advocate for themselves. Yeah. What kind of crazy backwards bullshit 
is that? Because it's, 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 it's because it's there's, heap, there's heaps of men going, oh, well, I would stop it. I've, I've been harassed so many times at industry events and in front of lots and lots of men with alcohol and without alcohol, and I've never had one single man step in and say, oi, that's not appropriate. And yeah. I've been in the industry since July 2012 hmm. because they go, oh, well, you can handle yourself. Guess what, fellas? I don't want to. I am exhausted and I am tired. And all that makes me think is you guys don't give an absolute flaming shit about mm. my safety, my mental safety, my physical safety, my belongingness in the industry. So every single man who sees that and does nothing says to me, I can't, I can't trust them. I can't go to them for help. Because mm. when shit goes down, sorry, I've got to stop swearing on this podcast. <laughs> when okay. things go down, I've got to stand up for myself, all the while knowing I'm going to be called, um, you know, but then I'm going to have made a scene, made a fuss. Why can't you take a joke? Why are you the fun police? Why are you the senior sergeant of the fun police? Why are you so strident? Oh, we can't make any jokes around you. Mm. So they tell us that it's our responsibility to make sure we don't get assaulted. They tell us it's our job to educate. And then all we get told is derision and mm, crapola. Yeah, so I, it's, it sounds as though that the, the victim, and this is the, so the first group we were just looking at is the passive bystander, and mm. you've made some very powerful statements about that, which I think all of us need to take on board. Um, but, it, but it also then hints to the second group I want to talk about, which is the victim themselves. You've used a, a specific phrase about that, that people expect you to be the perfect victim. Is that correct? You just want to unpack that a little bit, what it specifically oh, yeah. means? and this is something that I grappled with to try and articulate. Um, and I don't know if I borrowed it from somewhere. I'd love to give credit if I've, you know, taken it in by osmosis, but you have to be the perfect victim for anyone to think you deserve any type of justice and any of that justice should be done quietly and without any um, impact on anyone else around them so everyone can just get on with their day and not made to feel a mite uncomfy. Because mm. if you're ugly, well, <clears throat> I don't think love clearly it was just a compliment and you're probably not getting many of those. Oh, but mm. you're really pretty and you wore that outfit. So, I mean, you were looking for attention, right? Weren't you? You were looking for attention and, and you wanted, you wanted, you know, if you dress like that, mm. you're going to attract male attention. Um, if you get hysterical, well, oh, clearly she's very emotional and really, you know, to borrow a phrase from yesteryear, maybe she'd have a Bex and a lie down. Hmm. And if she's stone cold, well, then oh, didn't didn't matter. She wasn't upset by it. And this is mm. the thing, right? I wonder how many men realize that when we laugh at jokes, it's not because we think they're funny. It's, it's because it's to diffuse um, the situation so we can walk away because if we call you on it, you'll meet it with anger. Yeah. If we call you on it, you'll meet it with anger and it is a self-preservation Anytime you can see lots and lots of clips on the internet where you see people confronted with something horrifically inappropriate and a woman will uncomfortably laugh and men go, yeah, she found it funny. No, we didn't know how else to respond in a way that would protect our physical safety. And I can only imagine that you've been in a number of situations where you've had to do that and then one oh. specifically which, which went too far. Oh, absolutely I have. I. I was saying to someone, would, how would you like me to categorize 
the various harassment I have endured as a female at the age of 35? Would you like Mm. it to be personal in public? Would you like it to be at a nightclub? Would you like it to be at work? Would you like it to be at a function? What category of harassment would you like me to delve into because I've got a laundry list for each one? Yeah, wow. It's, it's, it's really, um, and I imagine people listening along right now will probably think the same thing, and, and perhaps if I speak from the male perspective, um, w- what they'll be hearing from you would be confronting, surprising, out of a general realm of understanding of how things work. Because if I think of my interactions when I go out, yeah, I might be personally conscious of my safety and I wouldn't go to certain parts of the city. Um, but from as you've described it, it's almost as if there's an innate sense that something probably is going to go wrong. And I can only think, just thinking to the specific example that you've shared with us so bravely, that when you go to industry events, it's almost as if you've got to be hyper aware of the environment and the context that you're in. Because if you're not the perfect candidate in the room to enjoy that situation, you can become the victim. And then you're asked, and this is just an incredibly complex, unfair, um, and in, in many ways so um, infuriating requirement that people put on you that if something does go wrong, we'll only respect you if you play by the victim's rules, the perfect victim. We must fulfill all of these unrealistic expectations, otherwise we won't take you seriously. I and- made sure to write exactly how much I had to drink that night in my report. Well. Wow because I knew it would be asked if I didn't. Hmm. And I thought, how lucky am I that I had made such a fuss of only having one glass of champagne because my award was up later, um, that the whole table made lots and lots of jokes, innocent jokes about it. But I thought, oh, how lucky am I because I have so many people who can attest to how much I'd had to drink. Because you know what's let's yeah. let's let's take a step back and think what's really really interesting. When men in Australia were getting in the old vernacular king hit, they went, "Oh, we need to change that because that's not okay. We need to rebrand it and we need to spend millions and millions of dollars on ad campaigns about cowards punches." And we got a former boxer on, and he talked about it and all of this stuff. Not once when any man was ever coward punched or king hit were the questions. What was he wearing? Where was his friends? What did he have to drink? Which street was he walking down? Had he antagonized anyone earlier? Mm. No, he gets to be a victim, clean and simple. When a woman is assaulted, was she wearing her earphone, both her earphones in the, you know, one of the, one of the police people came out and said, oh, well, women, you shouldn't wear both earphones in your ears. Only one at all time when you're walking through parks. What were you wearing? Who were you with? Had you led him on? Had you done anything that had caused it? Look at mm. London, how the lady who had been killed by a police officer on duty. And the response from the London police was, well, if a male, single male officer is trying to attempt to arrest you, flag down a passing bus. Hmm. So at what point do we put the obligation on how many times have you seen those ads growing up around mates don't let mates drink and drive? Yeah. 
mates don't let mates make women feel unsafe or other men feel unsafe or queer people feel unsafe or any of that, fine. It is intersectional and diverse, I get it, but when do men hold other men accountable? Yeah. When do you see it? There's always an excuse. There is never accountability. And if we hold them accountable, well, we're nags, we're shrill, we're shrews. We're going to end up alone with cat ladies. Mm. Yeah, well, just, <laughs> I'm just taking all of that in and it's, um, it's tough to stomach and I think. Um, and, and let's be clear, I don't hate men. I don't hate men. I don't hate the industry. I wouldn't be in the industry running my own business if I didn't love it. But the article came out literally like two days ago. This is super raw. So factor that when you're listening to that, factor in where I'm at at this podcast because I get to be angry and I get to be frustrated and it's, you know, it would, it's all too easy to say, well, she hates everything and everyone, so why mm. would we bother listening to her? Yeah, and I, that, would, that would be a blatant dismissal of um, who you are and what you stand for. And I've had the privilege of walking beside you for a short period of time and I can just say, and and the tone of what you've spoken about today um, isn't about taking a mallet to the industry or to people. Um, You're you're not trying to set things on fire simply because you're still consumed by that same degree of rage. Um, But I do know that you're motivated and you're motivated to speak up so that difference and change comes. Is that a fair statement? Oh, absolutely. And feeling helpless and feeling out of control and feeling small um, is part of what drove me to start my own business Um, because my clients will attest I fight for what they call the little guy Um, and little is obviously very, very um, uh, different in the shipping industry. You know, you (laughs) you might be have $10 million turnover and you're the little guy in that scenario. I just don't like bullies. I don't like bullies. I don't like people who throw their weight around and think that they are above any and all um, repercussions and can do what they want when they want. And it seems weird that that translates to business. But if you run your own business and you're responsible for staff, like that feeling of helplessness when someone bigger than you is bullying you around and you want someone in your corner. And I know how that feels. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not, um, angry at my clients I'm angry for my clients and I'll go <laughs> and I'll and I'll you know and I'm not I, I have I have a elegance when I when I resolve things but mm. it's a fierce determination right to protect the little guy and make sure where I can I can hold bullies to account because I think one of the things that really really I do feel like now that the articles come out I do feel a sense of pace because I've brought it out into the light um and it is a little bit hard talking about it right now because you're talking about it in depth and you're like, yuck, I don't want to feel this. <laughs> I don't want to feel those feelings, Jono. Yuck. Yeah. <laughs> Yucky. Yeah. Um, but it was the sheer casualness of what he did. It wasn't, it wasn't predatory. It wasn't like he'd waited in, you know, waited by the bathrooms and, you know, any of that. It was just the sheer audacity of how casual it was. Mm. And this is the thing we don't, well, no, there are some, 
super crap men out there that the industry should rightfully disown who are not adding value, um, who are predatory and taking advantage. But there is this constant grind of sheer casual sexism and misogyny in the way we speak, in the comments, in the dismissiveness. So many people are like, ah, oh, women should just speak up. Oh, but not like that. Mm, not too loud. Not too loud. Not too direct. Not too much detail. No, just um, <laughs> yeah. just just cough twice. Um, mm. Just cough twice if someone in the room has made you feel a bit uncomfy or worse and um, will nod at you and uh, I, I was I was contemplating just bringing like a deck of like football cards, like you know green, green and red, and just every mm. time, <laughs> and every time at a function, you're someone does something appropriate, just just card them and be like, red card, you're off, you're, you're out. Yeah. <laughs> I might still do that because I think it would entertain me. Look, we could talk forever on this topic, um, n- not because we want to labour the points per se, but because mm. there's so much depth. And what you've spoken about, and I, I personally am just honoured that you would share it with me, and then with this audience that is listening along. Um, it's an absolute privilege, and I'm just so grateful that you would do that. Um, but I, I want to ask you, um, in closing, uh, two questions: What mm. would you say to the industry at large, the industry that you know that I'm a part of, that you're a part of, that we that we know and love, that we know that needs to evolve, that we know, you know, is, is stuck in its ways in some instances, but is is heavily tried in others, and, and in other instances, is not even tried at all. What what would you say to those in the industry, um, uh, decision makers, those who are trying to make a difference, those who are participating? What sort of comments or advice would you give them? I'll start with that question, and we'll get to the second one. Uh, I would say I love this industry and I know we can be better because we are phenomenally good at hard conversations. It is the makeup of our industry, of our DNA, to do hard conversations because I don't know any other industries that's had to explain freight jumps from $3,000 to (laughs) $30,000 or to tell people every other month or every month, hey, Containers fallen overboard again. Soz, mm. we're great at hard conversations. Mm. So I believe that you can do hard conversations and it really comes down to is this the industry as it is what you want? Because yeah. it is really, really small, seemingly benign steps to you but massive to us. If you see something, say, mate, uncool. We don't do that. Just that. Mm. Just that. Call call each other out. Doesn't have to be a big show and dance. Just say, Mm-mm, no, not on. Yeah. No respect. No play. <laughs> yeah. So start with, and that's a really great practical thing that people can start doing right now. You don't need to take a course on this. No, you, you don't, don't need to sit take down a for course. hours of re- reflection. Just start being courageous in calling people out. I know, I know as a man and knowing other men in the industry, that's something that we can all definitely get better at. Um, don't be so concerned about your own position and your own job prospects that you would turn a blind eye to things that are happening right in front of you. That's a despicable practice and it needs to end. So my second question is about other victims. 
Mm. Um, everything, everything about me wanted to end on a hopeful note, and perhaps in your answer it can be hopeful, but it may not be, and that's okay uh, because it's a messy topic, and I know you've shared courageously on it, and you are the voice here of many mm. other voices that have gone unspoken. But what would you say to those people who have gone through experiences similar to yours or those that might find themselves in experiences uh, similar to yours? What, what sort of things would you say to those victims? I believe you. I believe you. It wasn't your fault. If you choose not to fight, I completely get it. If you choose to fight a little bit and then you give up, I get that too. And it's okay. And you need to forgive yourself. And my DMs are open um, and it's okay. You don't, I've chosen to share my story because that's, I had the privilege of being asked to write an article and I chose to share my story. You don't have to share your story for it to be valid. It is entirely your own choice how you deal with it. Um, But I believe you, it wasn't your fault and it's going to be okay. Well, well, I, I need to add anything, anything to that. It's a really powerful set of statements that you've made and, and powerful commentary through our whole chat. I mean, we've gone through a whole gamut of things, finding out a bit more about who you are and, and the way that you've operated and then finding out your love for the industry and then dis- discussing and working our way through an um, incredibly traumatic event for you that, is, that could have been defining if you wanted it to be. But what I know of you and what others know of you, it's the fuel. That's really fired you to continue to be a passionate advocate for lots of things inside the industry. And we can point to a lot of different achievements, but I think more than that, I just want to point to the person that you are. Um, Thank you. I know personally, I know others do as well, that you fight for things that are real, that you stand up for people who don't have a voice, that you advocate for things because, as you've just said, you you don't like bullies. All of those things uh, are courageous. All of those things indicate a huge amount of strength. And the fact that you want to bring about meaningful change, I think, is to everyone's benefit. So I just want to personally just thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a, a privilege, a real privilege, to hear your story and to and to share it with you. And uh, and I, I personally look forward to further chats with you. No, thank you so much. And uh, my message to the industry is show me, show all of us women how amazing it can be. Show up and show us every day how it's amazing. And let's dismantle this toxic crap once and for all. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Alison. It's been a privilege. It's been a pleasure. We'll catch up soon. Thanks, Jonathan. What an absolutely powerful story. I'm personally so moved by uh, Alison's courage to share and that she would clearly articulate what her experiences were, not to set things on fire, not to cause fights or, or division, but because she genuinely wants to make a difference. I know Alison, and I know the way that she operates, and I know what her heart is for both the industry, for other people who may be affected as victims, and for women inside maritime shipping and trade. She does want to make a difference. And I believe firmly that she will continue to do so, having been so able to powerfully share where she's come from, what she's been affected by, and how she's then been able to move past being a victim into having real victory over a situation which could have defined her and could have held her down. 
So we hope that you've enjoyed the show. I imagine there's topics on here that might have touched a raw nerve or caused further thought or reflection. And if so, please drop in a comment or reach out to Alison or anybody else associated with Let's Talk Supply Chain and we'll see if we can help or at least bring your voice to bear on these and other related topics as well. Did you know that QSAC and Co Academy offers courses specific to the maritime industry? Fill in your knowledge gaps and brush up on the essentials of the maritime industry with QSAC and Co's Propel Forward online course. In just four weeks, you can upskill your career while you learn from industry professionals at your own pace. Propel Forward is suited for recent graduates entering the maritime industry those already in the industry, and even experienced professionals that are looking to shift into maritime. And multiple payment options are available. Visit qsacandco.com.au for more info and follow us on Instagram for the latest news and updates.